Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest news and information relating to mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, this is the show where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources. With the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it and better educating the general public about mental illness. And welcome again, folks, to the show. This is the Wednesday, June the 11th, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. And have a lot of things to talk to you about. As usual, this has been a week chock full of mental health-related news. And unfortunately, again, as uh, has been all too often the case in recent years, <clears throat> have to start the show off with the first item being the major story, a mental health case uh, related to a mass shooting yet again. Uh, the man accused of killing one person and wounding two others in a shooting spree at a small Christian college in Seattle, Washington, uh, suffers from significant and long-standing mental health issues that were a factor in the tragedy, according to his attorney. <clears throat> Speaking to reporters after a court hearing in which a judge ordered the suspect, Aaron Ibarra, 26 years old, held without bail on suspicion of first-degree murder and assault, defense attorney Ramona Brandis also said her client had been involuntarily committed in the past because of mental illness. <clears throat> she added that Ibarra was sorry for the victim's pain. Uh, not sure why she thought that was important to mention. The probable cause statement filed in court by prosecutors said that Ibarra confessed to police detectives that he was, was the gunman the, sorry, the gunman in the incident, that he had been planning a mass shooting and wanted to kill as many people as possible before taking his own life. Local media reports citing unidentified police sources have said Ibarra, who was not a student at the college, was fascinated with mass shootings at other schools, including the 1999 Columbine High School Massacre in Colorado. I think it bears pointing out that law enforcement authorities have found that to be the case about many other mass shooters. Uh, unfortunately, the Columbine Massacre seems to be something that draws other like-minded violent young people uh, to it. Uh, as some sort of either sick, distorted inspiration uh, or touchstone for the crimes that they go on to commit. Now, police offered no public explanation for why the suspect 
might have singled out the Seattle Pacific University, a Methodist liberal arts college of some 4,000 students. Ibar is accused of walking into a building on the campus armed with a shotgun and opening fire on three people before pausing to reload his weapon. At that point, a student building monitor doused the gunman with pepper spray and tackled him. Several bystanders jumped in to help, seizing his gun, and they subdued him until police arrived to arrest him. Police said he was also carrying a hunting knife and at least 50 rounds of shotgun ammunition. <clears throat> and in the statement to reporters, his lawyer said, Mr. Ibarra suffers from significant and long-standing mental health issues, including delusions that were in play during yesterday's tragedy. She did not know the circumstances of his prior involuntarily uh, being committed. Police in Mount Lake Terrace, a suburb south of Seattle, said that Ibarra had been detained and committed to mental health facilities twice after his erratic behavior in 2010 and 2012. They did not provide any more details. Citing unidentified police sources, a local TV station said that Ibarra had actually visited the Columbine High School in Colorado, where the two students killed a teacher and 12 classmates for taking their own lives in 1999. So it's almost as if he considers the place a shrine, and he went there to pay homage to these other two killers, perhaps at, at, at that point aspiring to follow in their footsteps. It just gives you a, a flavor of how deeply disturbed this young man is. A 19-year-old freshman at this college who was shot during the rampage died a short time later. And a 20-year-old woman remained hospitalized in serious condition in the intensive care unit uh, at the time this article was written, but she was conscious and breathing on her own. There was a 24-year-old man who was in satisfactory condition with pellet wounds and a 22-year-old man was treated for minor injuries, suffered in the scuffle with the suspect. Uh, John Meese was hailed as a hero and uh, for stepping in, spraying the man with pepper spray as he paused to reload. And uh, many contributions were made to a fund in his name. Turns out he's getting married soon and uh, people found where he and his intended were registered and bought all the rest of their wedding gifts for them. Uh, it is really incredible to think about what he did. Here is uh, this, this man indiscriminately firing at people with a rifle and uh, without any thought to his own safety whatsoever, uh, but only <clears throat> thinking that he might save lives by intervening uh, he has the presence of mind to wait till uh, the shooter is occupied with reloading, <clears throat> the presence of mind to get his pepper spray ready, douse him, tackle him while he's disabled with the pepper spray, 
And uh, then, fortunately, by the grace of God, other bystanders joined in. Otherwise, who knows if he was left to uh, fight with the shooter on his own. He had a knife with him, a hunting knife, and uh, who knows how that struggle might have ended, regardless of uh, the issue of the pepper spray. <clears throat> this bloodshed in Seattle marks the latest in a series of mass shootings at schools and universities and other public places across the United States in recent years that have renewed a national debate over gun safety and mental illness. <clears throat> debate, yes. Changes, no, unfortunately. Now, <clears throat> those of you who follow this debate and are familiar with the laws regarding mental illness and gun purchases uh, should have noticed what I said about this shooter's history. This Mr. Ibarra was once involuntarily committed because of mental illness. And if you were paying attention to that fact and you know something about the mental health laws, you know that that meant he could not have passed a uh, criminal background check that is required before the legal purchase of a firearm. Uh, so that means, however, he came uh, uh, into the possession of the firearms that he used in these uh, attacks, in this murder, it was not by legal means. Um, he either uh, purchased it illegally, stole it, uh, or perhaps... Who knows, if he was in possession of the weapon for many years, it could theoretically have been purchased legally prior to his hospitalization. But uh, to me, that is definitely an issue in this case, all right? So if he had an involuntary psychiatric hospitalization on his record, that should have rendered him ineligible to purchase weapons. Um, and, of course, the argument then follows, well, that just goes to show you that the gun laws are, are uh, excessive and unnecessary and ineffective as they are uh, because, as this case and many others like it, unfortunately, shows, they do not prevent bad people from uh, obtaining guns when they ought not to be able to. <clears throat> well, you know, there are... Um, Still more incidents. Uh, I don't have enough details on it for tonight's show, uh, but there was a, another shooting at a school in Oregon. I mean, and it just goes on and on, ladies and gentlemen. It just does not seem to be able to stop uh, young men, typically, who are uh, tend to be brooding loners who may or may not give previous signs uh, that something is terribly wrong and that they're intending to act out violently uh, do so. Uh, they bring weapons into schools, whether they're a student there or not. And, um, you know, again, since the show is pre-recorded, I don't have all the details yet, but, um, <clears throat> you know, it just happened uh, that there was a shooting in Oregon. They found the young man having taken his own life in the bathroom in the school, and, you know, we, we just seem to keep having this happen over and over again. It is too difficult to make sure 
that the mentally ill get the treatment they need in this country, and all too often their mental illness leads them to become more withdrawn, isolative, uh, angry, despondent, and uh, sadly eventually violent. And uh, as they see suicide the only way out, uh, they have the modeling of all the cases that came before them uh, where they will commit some sort of heinous, uh, infamous crime that at least gives them some notoriety in death. Uh, Columbine uh, has spawned many a massacre uh, since it took place. Well, we're going to take our first commercial break on the show, and when we come back, we'll have other mental health-related news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com Have you checked out the only online guide where employers, health plans, brokers, and consultants can navigate private exchange and defined contribution markets? Browse PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today. The emergence of private health insurance exchanges represents perhaps the most significant shift in how Americans purchase health benefits in years. As employers move their employee population into private exchanges, this trend is on a growth projection into the 2015 benefit year and beyond, according to research published by Allegis Technologies. Visit PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today to browse our national searchable directory and for Healthcare Exchange Solutions magazine and newsletter. Be sure to submit your listing for inclusion in this groundbreaking guide at www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. That's www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you and your source for all mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's show, pot isn't harmless, according to the top United States health official. Now, before we get into the article, I want to give you my own take on this issue. I personally am very much alarmed by the increasing number of states in this country that are legalizing medical marijuana and also the possession of small amounts of marijuana for personal use and indeed legalizing the commercialization and sale of marijuana for personal use. There is a distinction that I want to make very, very clearly in this discussion. I am not taking issue with decriminalization of possession of 
small amounts for recreational use. That is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself uh, for, for those who choose to do that. However, I definitely need to discuss with you my feelings about the dangers of use of marijuana. It is not a benign substance. It is very toxic to the brain. It can cause permanent damage to cognitive functions, things like attention and memory. It can exacerbate anxiety disorders, such as panic disorder and obsessive-compulsive type symptoms, uh, not to mention it can either cause or exacerbate cardiac arrhythmias and pulmonary disorders as well. Uh, so I definitely have strong feelings about this issue as a psychiatrist, as a brain physician, as someone who endeavors to keep people's brains healthy. This is a substance that is very toxic to the brain. Uh, it will not only exacerbate anxiety disorders, it can e either cause or exacerbate psychosis and or hallucinations. And, you know, as far as legalizing medical marijuana, uh, perhaps um, a laudable goal, and why would I criticize that? Well, unfortunately, in many, too many jurisdictions, it is just too easy to scam the system and get a doctor to certify that you have a medical problem that uh, requires treatment with marijuana, uh, when in reality th there is not a serious illness that that person has that would warrant treatment uh, with medical marijuana. Uh, some examples of something that could be considered legitimate, someone with uh, cancer who's on chemotherapy with debilitating nausea that does not respond to normal prescription anti-nauseans, has no appetite, is unable to eat, and is wasting away. Who wouldn't agree with compassionate use of medical marijuana in a case like that to let the person uh, have the um, nausea-relieving and appetite-improving effects of medical marijuana? Uh, however, uh, there are some people who have very, very loose and flimsy criteria and get approved for it and are able to purchase it when all they're really seeking is a recreational high. Um, I'm not stating anything that isn't a well-known fact. Okay, well, enough editorializing. Let me go get to the article. Uh, states joining the march toward marijuana legalization need to take a step back and consider the drug's adverse effects on health, according to the United States Drug Czar, uh, who argues this in a new paper. Marijuana is potentially addictive, proven to contribute to fatal motor vehicle crashes, and can disrupt the brain function and learning of young users in particular, according to Dr. Nora Volkow, director of the United States National Institute on Drug Abuse. Legalizing pot will lead to the sort of nationwide health problems now attributed to alcohol and tobacco, she said. And uh, she is the lead author of a review article that was published in the June 5th New England Journal of Medicine. T tobacco and alcohol 
have a far greater impact on health in the United States than illicit drugs. That is true, as tobacco and alcohol's legal status make them more widely available for use. Now, uh, Dr. Volko said, by making marijuana legal, you have more widespread use and many more health implications. We don't need a third legal drug. We already have enough problems with the two that we have. Now, the pro-marijuana advocacy, advocacy group Normal uh, <clears throat> agrees that pot is not a harmless substance, according to Deputy Director of Normal, Paul Armentano. But he said its potential risks to the individual and to society do not warrant its present Schedule One illicit status under federal law, a classification that improperly argues that the plant lacks any accepted therapeutic value and that its risks equal those of heroin. What he's referring to, ladies and gentlemen, is controlled substances, especially the illegal illicit drugs, um, are scheduled and Schedule 1 is the most serious, things like LSD, heroin, marijuana. He's making the argument that marijuana, which may have some benefits for some people, should not be classified with those other chemicals. Uh, oh, and also cocaine is um, included in that group as well. Dr. Volkow is making her argument as the political winds continue to shift toward pot legalization. The Republican-controlled House of Representatives voted in favor of preventing the federal government from interfering with states that allow marijuana use for medical reasons. So, champions of states' rights, the House says no to the federal government stopping individual states who want to flout federal law and say that uh, they will allow medical marijuana in their state. Now, medical marijuana itself is legal in nearly half the states. That is not the same thing as what's going on in Colorado and Washington, where they have legalized uh, the sale of it for recreational use. <clears throat> Public opinion certainly is shifting. Now, in the new article, Dr. Volkow and colleagues said marijuana is addictive, contrary to popular opinion. Research has shown that 9% of people who try pot will become addicted. Pot's effect is even stronger among young people, addicting 17% of users under age 18. Uh, she says this is something that a lot of people who are pro-marijuana deny. The evidence shows otherwise. Part of the confusion in this argument is that it has been thought that since marijuana does not result in physiological dependence, uh, that it cannot be considered addictive. However, there certainly can be psychological dependence on it, and <clears throat> more recent research has shown that there is some degree of physiological dependence, as demonstrated by some physical withdrawal symptoms that sometimes happen when people try to quit, as well as psychological withdrawal symptoms. Marijuana also poses 
a public safety risk. People intoxicated by pot are three to seven times more likely to cause a car crash than someone sober. Most troubling is the tendency for teens and young adults to use pot and alcohol at the same time, which increases the risk of a wreck more than if they used either drug on its own. Pot also appears to affect brain development in young users. Scans have shown that teenage pot users suffer from decreased brain activity and impaired connectivity between key brain areas. Dr. Volko said, during adolescence, there is a tremendous amount of neuroplasticity. Uh, that means uh, developing uh, brain pathways and connections. She goes on to say, regular use of marijuana is likely to have an adverse effect on the way the human brain gets connected and organized. And this may explain why frequent use by teens is linked to lower IQ and higher odds of dropping out of school. <clears throat> Dr. Volko said that other research has shown that marijuana can serve as a gateway drug. Now, <clears throat> this argument is an old one, and it usually draws uh, howls of derision, if, if not at least skepticism, from many people. Uh, we all know people who have smoked pot and have not gone on to develop uh, use or abuse or addiction to other substances. And so for many, many people, of course, it is not something that looks like a gateway drug. Uh, I think uh, what can be said, though, is that at the very least, you can see how when people uh, get involved in a community, uh, where they can and go and do obtain illicit drugs, then they can eventually come in contact with people who get uh, other things, uh, including cocaine and heroin. Marijuana definitely can impair school performance. Uh, and as I talked about before I discussed this article, it can exacerbate mental illnesses such as schizophrenia. And uh, also, as I said before, it can increase the risk of health problems such as uh, chronic bronchitis and cardiovascular disease. <clears throat> Dr. Volko says that legislators considering marijuana legalization should consider these effects as well as all the gaps in current knowledge of pot's impact on human health. Of course, uh, the devil's advocate argument would say, well, alcohol's physiological detriments are very, very well documented almost from the dawn of time. Uh, and yet that substance is uh, legal and uh, not particularly regulated. Now, <clears throat> Dr. Volko also said, what is unfortunate in my view is that the information that's being presented is not objective. It's very subjective. We all want to think there is this drug that could make us feel relaxed and good with no harmful effects. That's a lovely fairy tale we all wish were true. All right. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. We'll finish up this argument and go on to other mental health-related news after this commercial. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. 
For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist here in America's Web Radio. Finishing up our discussion on Dr. Nora Volkow's discussion of the recent trends in marijuana legalization and medical marijuana use. Again, she's the director of the United States National Institute on drug abuse, the uh, she made the comment that the fact that it can help people and there's no harmful effects is pretty much a fairy tale. Well, you know, it certainly can be argued that medical marijuana may help some people, uh, but there definitely and absolutely are harmful effects. And uh, we are only beginning to scratch the surface of the negative consequences uh, of legalization of sale and possession of small amounts for individual recreational use. Uh, essentially, Colorado and Washington will be laboratories studying these things. And uh, sadly, the consequences are going to be accidental ingestion by children, um, accidental unintended adverse reactions, if not deaths from ingestion uh, of, of food containing marijuana, fatal car crashes from driving while stoned, and and who knows what else we're going to run into. 
Now, again, the director of Normal argues that, quote, ongoing criminalization of marijuana is a disproportionate response to what at worst is a health issue, not a criminal justice issue. Well, again, my answer to that is, okay, fine. You want to decriminalize uh, sale and possession of small amounts for personal use. Okay, I get that. Uh, the, the police uh, certainly have bigger fish to fry, and I'm all in favor of uh, their going after people who are uh, certainly in more obvious and present danger and risk to society than the person who just wants to quietly get high at home and not bother anyone. That's great. But let's not close our eyes to uh, the health risks, the adverse health consequences associated with alcohol, tobacco, and prescription drugs uh, are far more dangerous and costlier to society than the responsible adult use of cannabis. Uh, that, according to uh, Mr. Armentano, the director of Normal, he goes on to say, it's precisely because of these consequences that these products are legally regulated and their use is restricted to particular consumers and specific settings. And he says that legalization and regulation of marijuana will, quote, best reduce the risks associated with the plant's consumption or abuse. Well, uh, again, if he's making the argument uh, not to deny the health risks, uh, but to say that regulating it uh, legally as opposed to criminalizing it is the better solution, um, you know, I suppose... Uh, that is an argument that can be made. But, uh, folks, if uh, if this issue becomes more widespread with medical marijuana being looser and easier to obtain and more states uh, changing their rules like Colorado and Washington, I assure you we are going to see uh, some serious consequences ensue. <clears throat> now, moving on to a distinctly different topic. The early signs of Alzheimer's disease, we're going to talk about what they are and how to recognize them. And this discussion comes at a very interesting time because it was just announced the other day that a major research study has been launched with a potential new Alzheimer's drug uh, synthesized by Eli Lilly. And what they're doing is they have found cognitively intact, mentally healthy elderly folks who have an abnormal amount of amyloid beta protein buildup in their brain. Uh, these are the uh, proteins that accumulate abnormally in Alzheimer's patients and eventually uh, turn into uh, brain-clogging plaques uh, that are the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. They're giving these folks this drug, and it's going to be, I think, a three-year trial and then they're going to see whether the people who got the drug were less apt to develop Alzheimer's disease or not. But while it's obviously going to be a few years before we have any insights as a result of that study, in the meantime, when I saw this article, I said, well, uh, you know, even though it's scary and we don't want to think about ourselves or our loved ones uh, coming down with Alzheimer's disease, it's good to know the signs and the symptoms. And the other reason I want to discuss this is that it's good to know what the signs and symptoms are so that you can reassure yourself that if you had doubts about your own 
memory problems and forgetfulness and confusion that uh, maybe knowing uh, the difference, uh, you could dispel those fears. All right, so let's, uh, let's go over that now. Memory problems may be one of the first signs of Alzheimer's disease, but it's not the first sign for everyone. There are several other clues that Alzheimer's disease may be developing. Alzheimer's disease is one of the most common causes of dementia, which is a decline in thinking, remembering, reasoning, and behavioral abilities to such a degree that it interferes with daily life and activities. Most people with Alzheimer's disease are 65 years of age and older, but Alzheimer's is not a normal part of aging. Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease that gets worse with time. The disease is characterized by plaques and tangles throughout the brain. And plaques, as I said, are deposits of a protein called beta amyloid, and tangles are twisted fibers of another protein called tau. As the number of plaques and tangles increase, more brain cells are damaged, and the disease gets worse. Presently, there is no cure for Alzheimer's disease. People older than 80 with Alzheimer's disease may die within three or four years of diagnosis, but people diagnosed at a younger age may live 10 years or more after the diagnosis. Now, take note and tell your doctor if you notice any of the following early signs of Alzheimer's disease. Now, the first one, of course, is memory loss. Forgetfulness and memory loss are common size signs of Alzheimer's disease. These symptoms are more common in those with early-stage Alzheimer's. People with Alzheimer's disease might forget names or dates or that certain conversations and events have occurred. The next one is losing things. Consistently losing items may be another symptom of Alzheimer's. People with Alzheimer's disease may misplace items and become unable to retrace their steps to find those lost items. <clears throat> another sign is difficulty with familiar tasks. People with Alzheimer's disease may find it difficult to manage familiar tasks, such as handling money and their budget. At first, people might take longer to complete these tasks. Eventually, they may find it hard to complete the task. Another sign is difficulty making decisions. Changes in a person's judgment or decision-making abilities are other potential early signs of Alzheimer's disease. A person with Alzheimer's may make bad financial decisions or other unwise decisions. Alzheimer's patients also may pay less attention to personal grooming and hygiene. Another early sign is losing track, trouble keeping track of times and dates. Following familiar recipes and other familiar activities may also become more difficult. Planning and problem solving issues. Some Alzheimer's disease patients become unable to develop a plan and follow it through. They may be unable to take a problem 
and formulate an approach to solve it. Related to the problem-solving difficulties, people with Alzheimer's also may have trouble working with numbers. There are also vision and space problems. Alzheimer's patients can become confused when reading, determining distances, or identifying a particular color. Problems judging distance and telling colors, as you might expect, can lead to driving problems among Alzheimer's patients. Communication troubles. Alzheimer's disease may affect a person's ability to follow along in a conversation. People affected by this Alzheimer's symptom may stop in the middle of speaking or repeat themselves to remember what the conversation was about. Personality changes. Another possible sign of early Alzheimer's is a change in a person's personality or mood. People affected by early Alzheimer's may become confused, suspicious, depressed, or fearful. They also may feel anxious or aggressive. Isolation. Withdrawing from social interactions and situations may be another early sign of Alzheimer's disease. Some patients may stray from social activities like sports, hobbies, work projects, get-togethers, or casual interactions with other people. So what to do if you notice Alzheimer's symptoms? Speak with your doctor if you show any signs of early Alzheimer's disease. Your doctor will help distinguish issues related to aging from those that may be related to Alzheimer's. Here's one tip. If you forgot your car keys every day at 20 and you do so at 60, you're just forgetful. If you see a change in your memory or memory patterns, that's key and worth getting checked out. It's vitally important to get good help if you experience memory issues. It's important to get care from someone who specializes in Alzheimer's disease when you experience memory problems that need to be evaluated. While there is no cure for Alzheimer's, there are some treatments that may help maintain memory, thinking, speaking, and some behavioral problems for a period of time. Drugs like Aricept, Exelon, and Razadine are used to treat mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Nemenda is used for moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. Aricept can also be used for severe Alzheimer's. And while the drugs do very little, they may at least prolong the uh, uh, preservation of what memory there is left, um, <clears throat> slow down the decline, and above all else, relieve the burden of caregivers because they tend to help people be better able to care for themselves even if their memory continues to decline. All right, time for another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. 
Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that chronic nasal congestion, a decreased sense of smell, and asthma can be signs of allergies? Allergies are caused when the body is exposed to things you breathe in or eat that the body does not like. The body's immune system reacts and attacks it, what it perceives to be the enemy, even if it causes no harm, like pet dander or dust. This leads to swelling. In the nose, this causes congestion. In the bowel, it causes stomach bloating and diarrhea. In the lung, it causes shortness of breath and wheezing. And in the skin, it causes hives and itching. The first line of defense against allergy is avoidance. Dust proofing, washing pets, and keeping them out of the bedroom can help with environmental causes. For food allergies, keeping a diary of things eaten and reaction to them is helpful. Allergy testing is less time-consuming and is a safe and effective way to identify allergies. For a complete evaluation, you should see your allergy specialist. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, Dr. Scott Bay with you, your source for all mental health-related news. Next up on Psychiatry Today, are you a bedtime procrastinator? Now, bedtime procrastinator is not necessarily referring to what you might think. In other words, this is not someone who is a procrastinator and puts off things that they need to do until bedtime. Bedtime procrastinator literally means someone who procrastinates their bedtime itself. Now, you may think procrastination only applies to work and academics, like pushing that project forward in favor of a longer lunch, but researchers are now studying this new kind of procrastination that happens in the bedroom. In a study published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, researchers from Utrecht University in the Netherlands have found that bedtime procrastination may be keeping many of us from getting sufficient sleep. In their paper, researchers define bedtime procrastination as, quote, failing to go to bed at the intended time while no external circumstances prevent a person from doing so. Now, the flu or a house party upstairs count as external circumstances, but those little chores or distractions that don't need to be addressed before hitting the sack do not. And unlike other forms of procrastination, which may have career or academic consequences, bedtime procrastination leads to fatigue during the day. When it comes to overall health, sleep deprivation can contribute to conditions like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and depression, 
according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. Not mentioned on that list, but certainly should be included, sleep apnea. More than one quarter of the United States population report occasionally not getting enough sleep, and nearly 10% experience chronic insomnia, according to the CDC. This Dutch study of 177 people found that certain characteristics like self-regulation and general procrastination contribute to the likelihood of bedtime procrastination. If you procrastinate during the day, you're likely to procrastinate come bedtime. For the average adult, the CDC recommends 7 to 9 hours of sleep per night. We know that below 7 you're not getting enough sleep, around 8 is probably optimal, but more than 8.5 is mostly too much. Not hitting your recommended sleep quota can have scarier consequences than just bags under your eyes. People who regularly sleep less than six hours a night are more likely to have a higher body mass index, or BMI, a ratio of height to weight. Getting just two more hours of sleep could put you in the category of people with the lowest BMI, according to the Harvard Medical School's Division of Sleep Medicine. Sleep deprivation can also contribute to heart disease, hypertension, weight gain, poor mood, and poor immune system function. And it can lower life expectancy. According to a Harvard study, sleeping five hours or less per night increased mortality risk from all causes by roughly 15%. The impacts on health are tied to all the good things that happen in your body while you sleep. Adequate sleep allows your body to repair itself, rest, solidify memories, and secrete hormones that help control appetite and metabolism. How to defeat bedtime procrastination? It will be easier to beat bedtime procrastination if you establish healthy sleep hygiene habits. Now, longtime listeners to the show will know these by heart, I hope, because I preach them all the time. But let's hear what the article says. It quotes the National Sleep Foundation, which recommends avoiding naps, avoiding coffee and alcohol close to bedtime, as well as not eating right before you sleep. They also suggest avoiding non-natural light, such as the very bright display screens on tablets and smartphones and laptops and computers and even high-definition TVs. Avoid emotionally upsetting activities before bed. Uh, don't have that argument you were planning to have with your spouse right before you want to go to sleep. And don't use your bed as a living room couch, meaning no TV watching in bed. Good luck with that recommendation. Um, and they also don't mention it, but you shouldn't do work in the bedroom either. Common but very uh, important recommendation is the bedroom should only be for two things, for sleep and sex. Now, <clears throat> furthermore, in terms of sleep hygiene, to improve your sleep, 
the National Sleep Foundation recommends establishing a regular sleep pattern, doing vigorous exercises in the morning or afternoon, and relaxing exercises like yoga before bed, and making sure that your bed is comfortable. And they also suggest checking to make sure that your bedroom is not too hot or cold or too bright. Uh, <clears throat> those who do shift work have even greater challenges. Uh, it's against what nature intended to go to sleep when it's daytime. And so those folks uh, really would benefit from using measures like blackout curtains or eye masks uh, and uh, in fact, I just recommended to one of my own patients the other day, as soon as they leave work in the morning, because they work third shift, put on dark sunglasses. Of course, it's not going to block all the sunlight, but it will minimize uh, to what degree is safe the stimulation uh, of the brain gets from the sunlight and uh, perhaps in a small way uh, enable them to go home in the morning and go to sleep. Now... <clears throat> It's interesting that the same week I found this other article that says getting a good night's sleep may lower suicide risk. Uh, so let's go over that. A new study has found that trouble sleeping at night may contribute to a lot more, um, again, than this uh, dark circles under the eyes. It can be life-threatening. Now, this research was done at the University of Pennsylvania. And it found that individuals are more likely to commit suicide between midnight and 4 a.m. than at any other time of the day. The study was conducted by looking at data from the National Violent Death Reporting System and the American Time Use Survey. And it's going to be presented, the study is, um, actually it was to be presented uh, last week at the Sleep 2014 28th Annual Meeting of the Associated Professional Sleep Societies in Minneapolis. The abstract of the article is available in the journal Sleep. According to a recent press release, a total of 35,332 suicides were included in the study. It was revealed that the average suicide rate per hour was 10.27% after midnight and peaked at 16.27% between 2 and 3 a.m. After 6 a.m., the suicide rate decreased to about 2.13%. Overall, the researchers concluded that the frequency of suicide between midnight and 5.59 a.m. was 3.6 times higher than uh, the researchers had expected. All of this certainly raises the question of uh, what contribution the normal fluctuation of hormone levels that takes place during the night, uh, what role that plays in suicide, and how are those normal hormonal fluctuations disturbed in those who are depressed. The data from the study suggest that disturbances in an individual's natural waking and sleeping patterns may contribute to their risk of suicide. This would also explain why insomnia is also a risk factor for suicidal ideation and behavior. 
nightmares, and insomnia are known risk factors for suicidal thinking and behavior. But based on the results of this study, being awake at night may in and of itself be a risk factor for suicide. Data from this study may cause the treatment of insomnia to be an important tool in helping to reduce the risk of suicide. Mental disorders, substance abuse, and impulsive and or aggressive tendencies are also leading risk factors for suicide. Men frequently have higher suicide rates than females, and there are major disparities between racial groups, Native Americans and Alaskan Natives being the highest risk groups in the United States. According to Psych Central, on average, each year, there are about 38,000 deaths by suicide in the United States. Sadly, during the time it takes my show to air, between three and four people somewhere in the United States will take their lives. The leading method of suicide in the United States is firearms, followed by suffocation and poisoning. Although suicide is commonly perceived as the most popular cause of death among young adults, in actuality, it is the baby boomer group where there we are seeing the highest rates of suicide. Uh, so it is an older population that is at highest risk. There may be something about that group and how they think about life issues and their life choices that may make a difference. Once again, it always bears reminding uh, you, the listening public, who are concerned with mental health issues, uh, if you encounter someone who even says something vaguely offhanded about not wanting to live, please don't just ignore that remark. Talk to that person. Ask them if they've ever seriously considered hurting themselves. Uh, encourage them to get help. And don't be afraid that you're bringing the subject up with them will make it more likely that they will take their life. It is, in fact, the exact opposite. People feeling that way welcome the opportunity to talk about it. And being able to do so will make it less likely that they will take their lives. Well, we have to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you. And I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.